This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Well, the Dark Ages is a term for the early, the early Middle Ages, or occasionally the entire Middle Ages, in Western Europe, mostly, after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And that characterises it uh, often as it's marked by economic, intellectual and cultural decline. That's what some people say. But what happened during that time? Where, what were the advances in civilization during the Dark Ages? And do the Dark Ages deserve the bad reputation that they sometimes have? Here to explain them all and defend perhaps the Dark Ages is historian Eleanor Yanago. Uh, Yanaga. Eleanor Yanaga. Eleanor, yeah, very good. That's, Sorry. That'll work. Yeah. My apologies. <laughs> Thank Don't you. worry at all. Thank you, Eleanor Yanega, um, who uh, you can follow on Twitter at Going Medieval, one of the few medieval Twitter accounts. Or is it? Is there a tremendous interest in the the period known as the the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, the medieval period? Yeah, you'd be surprised. Uh, there are more and more of us um, over on medieval Twitter, it has to be said. Um, and it, it's a really kind of nice thing because one of the things that social media lets us do is talk about all the cool stuff that's in there that a lot of people don't really get the opportunity to learn about in school. So it's nice because it brings people on board, you know? We should point out also before we move on, you're friends with Alex von Tonsenmund, who we just spoke to in the last hour. I am. She and I are quite close. Uh, we're both here in London. So, you know, we, we hang out and do nerdy things like talk about books. So, <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with a pretty obvious question. When were the Dark Ages? Or is this a controversial question? It, you know, it's a really interesting one, because if you ask historians, we would say that it's the early Middle Ages, just like you said. So you would say, OK, they sort of begin, I guess, in the year 476 with the you know fall, quote unquote, of the Western Roman Empire. And then they last, you know, up until, let's say, about the 10th century, so about the 900s. Um, and we use that term for a really specific reason, uh, because it actually doesn't, for historians, mean anything about, you know, intellectual decline. What it means for us is a lack of sources. Um, and it's actually a term that was first made in the 17th century by a guy called Caesar Baronius, who was a historian, but also a cardinal in the Catholic Church. And he came up with the term uh, because of the fact that he was writing a big uh, volume of history and there just weren't a whole lot of sources around um, until sort of the end of the Carolingian Empire. And so we kind of use it to mean this like dark as in kind of obscure or, you know, you can't see it, not dark as in bad. But then in terms of popular culture, it kind of got picked up to mean, oh, well, there, there's a decline. Um, people are stupid. You know, things are falling apart. And then the problem with that is then people began to think that that meant the medieval period generally. Um, difficulty with that, too, is a lot of people just don't even know what the medieval period is, which isn't, and you know, it's nobody's fault. Um, yeah. And it's kind of in the name there, right? So when we say Middle Ages, what the Middle Ages are is the period of time between the ancient world and our own modern world, right? So, yeah. you know, you begin at 476 and then you end, I don't know, like in the 16th century, right? And that's a long time to call bad. Yes. So it doesn't really make sense, you know. Okay, so we know, therefore, if, if it began with the fall of the Roman Empire or the so-called mm. fall of the Western Roman Empire, in that 900 period or 900s uh, in the 10th century, was there something that happened there that perhaps marked the end of that particular period? And so one of the things that's kind of happened at that point is that, well, in the first place, it's closer to us in time. So it's just easier for sources to survive. Um, but also at this point in time, we have a lot of uh, institutions kind of up and running again. So this is after uh, Charlemagne's range and, uh, and what we call the uh, Carolingian uh, Renaissance, where there was a lot of effort and emphasis put into setting up monasteries who would have what we call scriptoria, which are where you sit down 
and you copy books, right? <laughs> you just make lots yeah. and lots of copies of books. And so you've got a lot more monasteries suddenly around Europe. And so you've got a lot more monks who are making a lot more texts and we just have better sources. Um, you also have now the kind of inklings of cities starting up again and a lot more kind of expensive courts. So a lot of kings kind of getting a lot of money. And that's the things that you need. Those are the recipes uh, for sources to actually survive. Because, um, you know, what I always say about it is, you know, if you ever move house, um, you know, you, you don't keep every single one of your phone bills that you ever got, right? You know, you, you'll say, I don't I don't want this kind of uh, this bill from five years ago. I'm just going to toss it out. Same thing happens all the time with sources. So you need stuff like um, the church to become very powerful and influential, which it wasn't really um, in the beginning of the uh, Middle Ages. Um, and, but when they become richer, they become more powerful. They've got the space to keep texts and they are able to afford to copy more texts. And that's what you need. You need this kind of magic combination of people making the documents and the will to keep them because they're considered important. Um, otherwise, you're just kind of shedding things all the time. So by the time you hit um, around about the 900s, you've just got a lot more money around the place and a little bit more stability. So it able okay. it enables us to keep things. Was it also the case, though, that the Dark Ages were so named because... People were looking back with a certain amount of nostalgia at the classical period. So that that is a long period of time, obviously, with ancient Rome, ancient Greece, those sorts of things, that our times, as we all do now, they're not as good as they were before. And so, mm. you know, there is this nostalgia, this uh, rose-coloured glasses, perhaps, for ancient the the ancient world, antiquity, and we're not as good these days. We don't have the same sorts of people, these geniuses who uh, wrote and um, you know you know were philosophers. Perhaps in, in that time, they didn't conquer the world the way you know we don't conquer the world the way they did. That th- there was this feeling of nostalgia that we're not as good as those earlier times. Oh yeah, absolutely. So medieval people are are they believe the same thing, you know, right? They they really really think about Rome as this high point. They really want to connect themselves to Rome. They're always kind of talking about, you know, the good old days and back then when, you know, when great men did great things. These kind of ideas, right? Um and so they are kind of complicit in this along with us, right? Because they're always sort of harkening back to what was and what could have been and you know, also kind of like trying to trace their genealogy to the Romans. Really? So, you know, well, yeah. So, you know, most kings, you know, around the shop, they will kind of like make up a lineage that says that you can connect them to, I don't know, ancient Troy, things like that, because that's how much they love the Romans, right? And if you um, have a look at the sources and texts that we get from the Middle Ages, you know, like uh, I just mentioned the Carolingian Renaissance, um, the texts that they are copying are pretty much classical texts. It's a lot of Aristotle. Uh, it's a lot of and they love these guys and talk about them all the time. So the way that they think about things is very much like that. Um, and so we kind of take them at their word a little bit, you know, so it's, it is really easy for, for them to kind of say, oh, well, back in the day, everything was better. And for us to, to kind of believe it, you know. <laughs> so when we're talking about the Dark Ages as well, just to use that term, we're talking mm-hmm. geographically about Western Europe basically. Mm. What about the rest of the world? Because if we don't have the sources for Western Europe at that time, I would think the sources for Africa, South America, North America, Australia, for that matter, there are Mm. even uh, fewer uh, sources, original sources being written at that time. Asia perhaps might have. Uh, Was the rest of the world in the Dark Ages as well? So that's a really interesting question. And, you know, one of the things that we can certainly see is so over in the Americas, you get a lot of interesting written sources, uh, for example, like the Mayans and the Aztecs in Central America. And we, we know quite a lot about them, um, from that period. But a lot of the, um, American societies were pre-literate, not to say all of them, you know, as I say, you know, you, you've got your Mayans and you've got your Aztecs, you've got your Incas, people like that. Um, but, you know, if you, there's no sources, there's no sources, uh, because people kind of talk about things instead 
said. And it's just another way of uh, kind of doing um, documentation, right? Um, and then you'll get some really interesting uh, problems in certain places. So um, I've got a friend, Alex West, who is a doctor of Indonesian medieval history. And, you know, their problem is that texts in Indonesia are written on banana leaves uh, mm. <laughs> around this time. And the thing about living in the tropics uh, with the writing everything down on banana leaves is that they rot, right? Mm. So we lose all of these sources just because, you know, there's tons of them. Lots of stuff was written down, but it's just going to decompose at a point in time if you've got really hot weather and no air conditioning, which obviously uh, you don't have. Now, there are certain places also like China where it's just endless records. Where it just it goes on and on and on. We have wonderful records for uh, Japan and China, even into you know like what we would call BC, you know, like before the Common Era, mm-hmm. uh, and they and that it's just like endless, endless stuff. Um, so that's a really interesting one because it, it it we're kind of trying to now talk about often what we call the global Middle Ages. So bringing all of these things together because when you know talking about these things is kind of like very European centric, right? And I'm a Europeanist. That's what I work on, right? Uh, but you can't say that the same thing is sort of happening all over the globe. And there's different problems and different ways of looking at sources at all different times yeah. you know even in europe you know we i said the fall of western rome and that's because eastern rome still exists you know constantinople is still going and we have extensive sources from constantinople for the entire period so you know who's dark ages is this kind of the yeah. question so here you know if it is the european dark ages as you pointed out um all the things that were not happening at that time that happened later on with the renaissance the enlightenment then things like that were they happening elsewhere now that we have or that we have records from say china and japan were they Mm -hmm. advanced making the sorts of advancements that western europe wouldn't make for centuries yeah you know actually that is one thing that we we certainly see so you know like um you know china has really incredible uh technologies even going back into the bc so you know you talk about the enlightenment which we link to for example the scientific revolution and chinese people have hermetically sealed research laboratories in the first century bce you know so they they have this idea of you know doing experimentation and saying that you need to seal off your laboratory in order to keep conditions the same which we just don't have in Europe. It's just not the way that people think about things. So yeah, absolutely. Um, and indeed, one of the ways to kind of look uh, specifically at Chinese history is to consider that their Middle Ages kind of ends uh, in about the ninth century, and then they are just in the early modern period. Uh, so they have um, a pretty high quality of life. They've got um, a lot of food. Uh, they're trading really well, things of this nature. Whereas Europe, it just it takes us a little bit longer to kind of uh, get on the same page. So yeah, it, it is quite interesting because other societies do come up with these things and kind of understand these things. And, uh, you know, it takes uh, rather a lot for Europe to kind of overtake China as the preeminent world power. And that doesn't really happen until we start kind of doing um, empires again, really. So why is it that some, and we can expand this to continents, Mm. why did some develop at a much faster rate than others? Why is it that some develop cities whereas others don't and some develop what we might call you know early music perhaps and others don't or that uh, you know art galleries or even universities are starting to develop mm. you know in the maybe 1300s or so in some places but not elsewhere yeah, so that's a, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, a lot of it's cultural because people just kind of do different things and they've got, you know, varying interests. So one of the things that does happen um, when uh, Western Rome falls over in Europe is you kind of just um, have a bit of a drain out from cities because the cities were basically, you know, funded by farming in the countryside. And all the rich guys would kind of like come into Rome to vote and then they'd go back out to their villa. And what kind of happens when you no longer have a centralized government is they just all kind of stay at their villa. And that's what happens, right? Um, So you see a kind of collapse of cities, and then cities kind of come roaring back sort of in the 11th century, at the same time that Europe then starts universities uh, in the 11th century. Um, And, you know, over in China, for example, they have a really urban society the entire time because they have um, really strong centralized um, empires and imperial governments. Um, So even if you manage to topple one of the dynasties, say, you know, you topple the Song dynasty, just off the 
top of my head. Um, you know, there's a really strong capital in Beijing. You just set up a new emperor and they go, OK, great. Well, I like this system of scholars that creates the government and we're just going to keep all these uh, these guys running. Right. We're going to we're going to keep all of these same institutions running through. And that's what they do. Um, whereas, you know, so, you know, a great example of this is Australia. Um, you know, I, I can say for yes. as someone who's who spent three years in Australia, you know, it takes a really long time to have tech uh, that will allow you to have like really heavy agriculture um, in those climactic conditions. And, you know, we still see this when we have like the big droughts and stuff, the way it'll, uh, you know, affect mm-hmm. uh, the farmers, especially in places like uh, Western New South Wales, right? Imagine trying to do that in, you know, I don't know, the 13th century sure. <laughs> or something like that. You know, how are you going to get the irrigation in? So there are really big uh, problems with kind of having, uh, you know, a really large scale city in places like Australia that we just didn't get to until the modern period worldwide, right? So, um, you know, it depends on what your climate is like. And it just depends culturally on what your emphasis is. So um, there's all kinds of factors that always go into these things, basically. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, it depends on your topography. It depends on what mm-hmm. uh, grows. It depends what your needs are. If you don't need to travel the world, if you don't need to have a non-plant-based mm. diet or only a plant-based diet, you don't see any necessity to develop that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, this is something that we see, for example, when we have Europeans kind of getting out to the Pacific Islands and they're like, hey, these guys just hang out all day and mm. eat pineapples. And everyone's like, yeah, we do. And, and Europeans are kind of like, why would you do that? They're like, I don't understand why I would do anything else. Yeah, you know, exactly. that. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense, you know, from you know, we spend our whole lives trying to work enough so that we can go over to Tahiti on holiday and they, <laughs> they already had it, you know. One of the common descriptors, perhaps, of the Dark Ages is that it was a bit, and we're talking about Europe, Western Europe now, a period of social and cultural decline. Now, some people may say we're going through that right now in the world. <laughs> Uh, but what was that possibly true in Europe uh, mm. at that time that the society and culture declined from the end of the you know Western Roman Empire? You know that's a, a really good question, and um, you know I suppose it, it sort of depends on what we mean by decline. So there are certain things that you can definitely say uh, change, right? So for example, we see a lot less uh, traffic across the Mediterranean. So we see a lot fewer kind of ships making the trip back and forth places. And that has, you know, real world consequences. So for example, in the Roman Empire, pretty much all the amphorae that are used throughout the Roman Empire um, are created in what is now uh, Tunisia and Libya, and then they're kind of taken across the Mediterranean and distributed to other places. Uh, If you don't have those coming in, then that means that you're going to have to make your own pottery. That can be kind of annoying, and it's a lot of work, you know. So you you have a, a shrinking of things like that. But then on the other hand, there's all kinds of advancements in this period that, you know, the Romans never thought of or weren't able to do. So you have have major agricultural advancements, for example, uh, like, and, and this sounds, I know this sounds kind of like a dull from our perspective, but they make a big difference. Um, the heavy plow is a really big and important uh, thing that the, um, the early Middle East, the Middle Ages people come up with. And it allows you to plow the really heavy, dense soils of Northern Europe. And that means suddenly we have people who are moving into places in Europe that they weren't able to have farms in before. And we're feeding a lot more people. You have the population expand. You get to have a lot more people. And then they start coming up with a new and interesting innovations, for example, like draining land. So you have uh, the, the swamps that are in what is now Belgium and the Netherlands get drained and suddenly there's a whole bunch more land and more people are living there. And, you know, you have all of these interesting technological innovations that, you know, the Romans never came up with. <laughs> so it, 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 the question is, you know, like, well, what do we what do we mean by that? Right. So, you know, obviously the number one thing that we really kind of lose, I would say, is uh, Roman concrete, which we still haven't figured out what it is uh, <laughs> that they were using for that. We don't know. Uh, and that was pretty cool and good. But, um, you know, a lot of stuff actually does still uh, get better and change uh, in this period. So, you know, it, it's kind of like swings and roundabouts. You lose some things, but you get some new things as well. So some politicians in those days promised to drain the swamp and they were right. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they, that is number one, what they did. And then hilariously, you know, they drain the swamps and then they run some sheep through there. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a very Kiwi vibe going on in the in the Middle Ages. Everybody's trying to to grow sheep and make wool, which is like, a, you know, the big cash crop mm-hmm. in Europe. So uh, and it makes people fabulously wealthy and it allows for new cities to grow in places that they they never did. And so, you know, we've got to give it up for medieval period uh, people because they really do come up with new and exciting things it's just that we don't tend to focus on them so in the middle ages on this period we we kind of think of western europe as you know with the geographical borders the country borders that they have now but that of course is Mm. not right were there nations then Mm. that are pretty much representative of what they are now or were they you know were there i mean obviously smaller parts of countries like France, you know, there'd, there'd be different uh, mm. different parts there that were not united as one nation. Of course, Italy was as a whole lot of different kingdoms or states there mm-hmm. as well. So, um, when did that start to sort of break down those individual smaller areas, and we see the nation states that we know today? You know, that's a really great question. Um, So around especially in the early medieval period, what we call the kind of the Roman successor states, uh, they they spring up. And there is sort of one over um, on the Iberian Peninsula in what is now Spain, which we refer to as Visigothic Spain. Um, And so uh, and there's a pretty contiguous state there that then uh, gets uh, toppled by the uh, Umayyad Caliphate when they come in and they and they uh, set up uh, the the new kind of nation state. Well, it's not a nation state. It's a kingdom there. Um, and they were pretty well unified, which uh, is kind of shown by the fact that they collapse so quickly. So when they when they get attacked, um, then it's really if you're more centralized, it means that you fall apart more easily. Right. If you've got a lot of little small kingdoms, it, it's harder to kind of take over them. You know, Italy doesn't start to exist, you know, our idea of Italy until, you know, like the the 19th century. So almost. Yeah, yeah. The first uh, what we would kind of like see as a kingdom, which we kind of recognize really come up is France. Um, And it's not as big as what France is now. Um, It is centered on Paris. And it does kind of go down to sort of like, you know, Burgundy and Aquitaine and places like that. Uh, But interestingly, a lot of them speak French, but a lot of them don't, you know, in in places like um, Occitan, they speak Occitan. Uh, You know, so you have all these different languages that are in there. But France is is really like the first big one that um, that is a real contiguous whole, because even in the early Middle Ages um, in, you know, up here in what is now England, you've got like the Kingdom of Essex, the Kingdom of Wessex, you know, the, the Kingdom of Northumbria. And there's just all these kingdoms all around the shop that it takes a while to amalgamate. Uh, by the time you get to what we call the High Middle Ages, so about uh, you know the year 1000 or so, you start to see those coalesce a bit more. But it takes a few hundred years. Um, you know, there's no Germany, for example. Uh, we'll use the term like the German lands uh, a lot of the time. Um, but one of the ones that is kind of similar is is what I work on the most, which is. Um, what we call the Czech lands. So Bohemia, which is still the state of Bohemia today, um, and Moravia, which the kingdom of Moravia, which is still what we call, you know, Moravia today. Those guys pretty much exist um, in the way that we understand now. But the difference is that they're part of the Holy Roman Empire. So uh, they're amalgamated underneath the, the emperors that control you know, Italy, bits of what is now France, uh, bits of, uh, you know, all, pretty much everybody who speaks German, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And so you have all these really interesting uh, varying uh, kingdoms that do a lot of um, cool and weird things, you know, that move back and forth. But it, it is really, to be honest, a different way of kind of looking at Europe and thinking about Europe. Um, in the later Middle Ages, so kind of around in the 14th century, 15th century, you start to see more ideas of what we, we would call nationalism uh, spring up. Um, and that's oftentimes, uh, you know, kind of aimed against people that that you don't like. So, you know, a kind of concept of Englishness kind of springs up because they don't like the French, right. you know, <laughs> and they, they're always fighting back and forth in the Hundred Years' War, right? So same old, same old, that kind of a thing. But um, it takes a really, really long time for places, for example, like, I don't know, Belgium to come up with an idea that there, there that there is a Belgium, right? It, in a, you need kind of modern processes, modern ways of looking at the world um, instead of kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, here's our king, which is the way that medieval people kind yeah. of think about it. So we're getting a couple of text messages. Rosa wants to know, did children go to school 
during the Dark Ages? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, and the answer is yes. Um, but the way that they went to school is really different. Um, and it also kind of depends place to place. So um, we have to keep in mind that all throughout the medieval period and, you know, even into the modern period, great majority of Europeans are peasants. So about 80% of the population are all just farmers, right? So it doesn't mean you're poor. It just means you're a farmer. That's what peasant means. And a lot of the time, if you are a peasant, you're probably not going to be able to send your kid to school because your kid is helping out on the farm, basically. Um, and also it can be kind of a long way to school. But the schools are essentially churches. And the church has a real um, commitment to educating anyone who shows up. So um, oftentimes in cities and places like that, you can just send your son. It's often your son. It's usually not your daughter. Uh, it's much harder if you're if you're a girl to, to get an education. But you'll send your son um, over to local church and they'll learn to read and write. Um, and then they can kind of take it from there. Um, and so the church sees this as a fundamental good because it keeps them supplied with priests, right? So, you know, if kids get really into it, then they might they might want to do that themselves. Um, but uh, it's not, you know, organized in villages in the same way that we see now. Um, the, the the first kind of like a schools in the way that we, we think about them now as kind of like a community project um, don't come about until Italy in like the 16th century. So it's, it's like a renaissance idea. Um, and even then, it's kind of like rich guys get together and they educate like <laughs> their kids. You know, the, the, the street urchins aren't getting to come to school. Uh, but yeah, there are uh, there are ways to kind of get kids educated. But um, also a lot of kids will be educated in the home yeah. and but what uh, are they being taught because hmm. i mean i don't know that they're being taught to read there's nothing for them to read uh, <laughs> okay so the thing we got to be careful here with with the dark ages is they are being taught to read and this is the big one so there's there are things for them to read but that doesn't mean that they survive to us right so it's two different things right okay. so they've got plenty of books around the shop it's just that we they didn't they haven't kind of made um, it to us so uh but the interesting thing is they learned to read and write in latin specifically. Yes. So to be literate in the Middle Ages is to read and write Latin, and that's what they learn. Um, and they learn that. Um, and then by the time you get to uh, the 12th century, when we invent universities and things like that, um, you learn uh, what are called the trivium, which is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So you learn to read and write Latin, you learn philosophy, and you learn to argue philosophy. So it's a law of reading Aristotle. Um, and then when you get that, you do what is called the quadrivium. So you move on to doing arithmetic, geometry, um, astrology, and music. And so, and those are considered the seven liberal arts, and that's what you get taught. So uh, it's it, so it's quite interesting. But um, kids do kind of also learn how to read and write in their own home, and a lot of times, mums will will teach you that. And you know, people people are basically uh, numerate a lot of the time. You know, they can they can add and things like that. But that like that's not uh, particularly special or anything. But you know, if you're going to be doing, ugh, I don't know, um, kind of like advanced uh, trigonometry or something, that's something that you need to be taught in a school usually. Eleanor Yanaga is our guest as we talk about the Middle Ages. Now, Graham in Hornsby says there are a couple of books, 1405 and 1432, that suggest that the Chinese were responsible for the Renaissance, setting off to Europe with a large fleet of ships, including a massive encyclopedia in many volumes. Is there any truth to this? Uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So these are uh, Gavin Menzies' books, and um, I've certainly seen these. And, you know, I've got a really annoying medieval historian answer for this, which is uh, uh, I don't really believe in the Renaissance, and I think it's uh, an Italian campaign to get you to buy art. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, which is – and there's a reason for this, right? I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a book about this, so, so forgive me. Um, and so the thing about – some of the things that we see um, in the Renaissance is we do see this increased contact with China, which is, which is great um, and fantastic. And there really is – a you know, kind of um, a, a a thing that China is doing in the 15th century, where uh, they are kind of showing off uh, <laughs> everything that they've got over there. So, you know, they'll, they'll do things like they have got, for example, treasure fleets that they'll just kind of like send all throughout Asia and be like, hey, I brought you some silk. Isn't this nice? And everyone will go, wow, it is really nice. You know, and, and then this sort of thing. So there definitely are, you know, books that kind of come over uh, from China. And that's really cool. Um, you see an increase in circulation of a certain Greek texts after the fall of Constantinople, because when people leave, they, they bring these texts with them. But see, here's all these little hints, right? Because it's like, well, the Greek 
guys, they had those texts the entire time. So again, like whose renaissance is this? You know, like what there was nothing really stopping you from having a look at those books before. So what what can we really think about that? And, you know, the idea of the renaissance is, is first uh, brought up by this guy called Giorgio Vasari, um, who writes a book called The Lives of the Greatest Sculptors and Painters. And um, it's an ad campaign. It's a marketing mm-hmm. campaign to sell people Michelangelo's work because he's friends with Michelangelo. And then everyone goes, oh, yeah, fantastic. Wow. Uh, we're we're in the renaissance now. And isn't that and isn't that <laughs> nice? And, it, and it's sort of like, I don't know, mate, like he's just trying to he's trying to sell you a painting right now. And so we have to be really careful. You know, that's the thing that we're supposed to be doing as historians. We need to kind of like look at uh, texts like this and say, well, what what are they arguing for? And, and what is this new thing that they kind of like think they have? And yeah, there's definitely um, this new way of doing art. Uh, that that they come up with them having perspective in paintings. And that's really cool. But it's also not the only way of doing art, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's all kinds of um, interesting things and in the Renaissance. And I, I really dig it. And I think okay. that it's cool. But we, we need to be careful about praising them a little too much. I all think. right. Robin is with us in the UK. Robin, good morning. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, your guest. Regarding the Islamic Golden Age from the 8th to the 14th mm. century, did that mirror the Dark Ages and did it lead to any influence? And what was happening in the Pacific area in that time in indigenous cultures? Do we have any records of that? All right. Thank you very much. The Islamic Golden Age. Oh, the Islamic Golden Age is so cool. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. So um, we get a lot of things kind of going on in the Islamic Golden Age that are absolutely picked up in Europe. And it's really understood that there's a cool advancements happening um, in Islam. And there's a lot of back and forth regarding this. Um, so, for example, uh, you get a lot of cool advancements in medicine uh, that are coming out of uh, the Arabic world. Uh, for example, um, they they can do like eye surgery and things like that. And so uh, medieval Europeans are really aware of that. They're hyper aware of it and they want this information. Um, so you get to see certain things kind of set up, for example, like over in Spain, you have a scriptoria that basically do absolutely nothing, but they translate texts from Arabic into Latin. And hilariously, some of the texts that we end up getting, uh, for example, of Aristotle and things like that have been translated from the Greek into Arabic and then back out of Arabic into Latin. And that's how Europeans get hold of them is not through like right. the Greek way, but through uh, the Arabic world. So um, there's lots and lots going on um, in the Middle East, um, really good trade routes and that sort of thing. And one of the things is that Europe is always hooked in with that and they're always hyper aware of it and want to kind of be involved with that. And you do have a really lively kind of uh, back and forth uh, where you see people who will, for example, go over to the Middle East in order to be trained in medicine and then they go back to Europe, stuff like that. Um, mm. So that is always kind of going on and it is something that uh, Europe is really connected to. Um, and that's because really actually in throughout the Middle Ages, you know, what we call Afro-Eurasia, it's kind of like the northern Sudan part of Africa and Europe and Asia, they're always moving things and people and ideas back and forth. It's slower, you know, because things just kind sure. of take a little bit longer, but it's it's always happening. Um, okay. In terms of what's going on in the Pacific, uh, we don't know as much as we would like to because a lot of, uh, you know, for the same reasons I was kind of talking about before, um, some of these societies are not literate. So, you know, we, we get our information about them through oral sources. Um, or oftentimes, you know, if it, again, if it's a quite hot place, we just lose sources because they will simply decompose. Um, but we do know a little bit about kind of like Pacific Rim stuff in, you know, Mexico, Central America, and then of course, like uh, China, Japan, those bits of Asia. Yes, uh, less so um, the Americas, although we have some okay, you know, um, uh, we have some okay stuff for like uh, kind of around up uh but between what is now alaska and russia that bit over there we do find things there but sadly it's just kind of um because of the way that people do knowledge uh we just can't look into it in depth in the same way that we can with say europe okay what about the church now that was uh, the dominant part of people's lives and also government at that time is that the case or did that happen mostly later on you said you were talking about when monks became far more um uh, yeah, the far more, a lot more monks, and uh, the development of the monasteries. But how important was the church, the Catholic Church, really, uh, in in that time that we call the the Dark Ages? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question because actually, um, really at the beginning, you know, in the in the Dark Ages, the early Middle Ages, um, a lot of the time the church as we think about it now, like it just doesn't exist yet. You know, um, there's certainly a pope, uh, but he's a lot more like the Bishop of Rome and a lot less like, you know, the guy who calls all the shots. Um, and indeed, if you look over um, again in Constantinople and you look over in Eastern Rome, which we call Byzantine now, but they call themselves the Eastern Romans, uh, you know, they've got uh, a different system where they have the Patriarch of Constantinople, and then there's the Patriarch of Jerusalem, and all of these uh, different guys who kind of get together to argue out uh, what kind of a Christian dogma is going to be and what theology is going to work. And the Bishop of Rome is definitely uh, involved in that, but they don't think that he's the most important guy. Um, and it takes the popes a really, really long time. It takes them hundreds of years to get anyone to really take them seriously as the head of any kind of church. Um, and it's really actually Charlemagne who is really responsible for this um, when he gets crowned on Christmas Day 800 as the Roman emperor by the Pope at the time. And that kind of gives some legitimacy, ironically, to the Pope. It's like the emperor gives the Pope some power there. Then by the later Middle Ages, uh, the church is up and running. Um, you have them a lot more as kind of a legal structure is the way to kind of think about them in the Middle Ages. And then they become really, really important. Um, but actually, you know, there it's just not um, in the earlier medieval period. It's simply not as powerful as people imagine it to be because, you know, those structures just aren't in place yet. Um, and they're working on it, but it, it takes a long time to convince everyone that some guy in Rome is, you know, in charge sure. of God. <laughs> so did the people, though, at, you know, peasant level, and as you say, peasant is just a term, really another term for farm, farm worker or farmer. What about the, the world leaders or the kings and queens of their area or of their nation? Did they have much influence over their daily life? Oh, that's a, a really good question. Um, so, I mean, I think the person who has the most influence over your daily life, if you're a regular peasant, is going to be your local lord, right? So, I don't know, it might be a baron, it might be a count, um, you know, it might just even be a knight, somebody like that. And that's going to be the person that you have the most uh, contact with. Um, and in the earlier medieval period, a lot of the time, you know, almost what they say goes, a lot of the time kings don't have that much structural power to tell those guys, you know, what to do and 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 how to kind of control things. There will be a lot of the time a king who's over them, which uh, who eventually calls all of the shots. Um, but it's going to be for you as a regular person, if you have a problem or, uh, you know, the, you have a legal dispute, it's going to be the, the local guy who really tells you what is what about that. And, you know, then they kind of slot in underneath the king and then the king a lot of the time will, you know, sometimes come up with laws. But, you know, again, it's one of those things where you've got to have the money, you've got to have the time um, and you have to be able to sort of uh, control people. And that takes a little while uh, to, for some places to really come together with that. So, you know, Charlemagne's the big guy who manages to do it first in the earlier medieval period. But, um, you know, you do have guys like, uh, for example, Clovis the the king of the Franks, who does a pretty good job um, with this. But, you know, day-to-day -day life, you probably don't think about the king that much. It's a lot more likely that you think about your local lord. So yeah. it kind of game is a Game of Thronesy, right? So it's more likely that you're thinking about the Starks than, you know, whoever is controlling, you know, whatever's going on down in King's Landing. I always use these outdated yes, uh, Game of Thrones references. <laughs> what about armies, though, and military? So there were wars at this time where people drafted mm. into... Uh, the army or do they choose to join because at least that way they might have a slightly better life than the one they're leaving leading yeah yeah that's a that's a, a really good point so um armies are a lot different um in the middle ages now a lot of them are comprised of you know mercenaries so you know you'll just decide yeah i'm gonna be i'm gonna be a mercenary and that's it's a good way to kind of like make cash if that's what you want to do because uh, people are always sort of fighting that but there isn't the idea of like a national army as such but again what will happen is that if there is a, a war, you get conscripted by your local lord, right? So the local lord will get told by the king, hey, we're going to war. And they'll go, oh, okay, we're going to war. And so they kind of tap you know, their knights who live in their house and they and they are people who have been trading their whole life to fight and that's that's what they do. Um, and so got those guys come along. But if you're a peasant in the field, sometimes you get told, you know, hey Roger, grab a pike, we're going, <laughs> you know. And then and then you're suddenly, you know, marching down the road to to go to war with, you know, whoever about whatever. Um 
And what's quite interesting about that is that these guys, a lot of the time, um, the way they think about war in the Middle Ages is really different because for the higher ups like kings and lords, they are not really thinking about themselves um, as wanting to do war like we do now, which is like kill each other they want to kidnap each other uh because what you do is you you find you know the the richest noble that you can see on the battlefield you kidnap them and then you hold them for ransom and you can make tons and tons of money this way by ransoming people back so war isn't quite as deadly at the time uh and there's a few reasons for this in the first place it's really hard to kill someone if you have to walk up to them with a pointy stick yeah. and poke them Right. So they they don't do that. Um, and then also a lot of the time they just want to kidnap you and make a bunch of money. So, you know, all the time you'll see like during the Hundred Years War, uh, it goes on and on and on. And, you know, sometimes the king of France just gets kidnapped and taken back to England. You know, they don't want to kill him. They want money. Yeah. So it's a really different way to think about war um, because it's just a totally different world, really. Well, um, Richard, the Lionheart was uh, held for ransom mm. as well. Mm hmm. Absolutely, a couple of times. And, you know, Richard the Lionheart, he loved battle, right? And so he's he's kind of constantly, you know, making his way around, just kind of attacking random castles and seeing what money he can shake out of them and that kind of thing. So, you know, you, you, you do see a lot about that. Um, and, you know, you'll get a slap on the wrist. A lot of the time the Pope doesn't like it. You know, the Pope's like, hey, you're not supposed to be attacking other Christians. But um, it's a great way to raise funds. And, there's you know, there's always somebody to fight with. Just before we talk about the role of women at this time, was this a repressive age? Was dissent tolerated? If you had a different view to your local lord or to the king or to the pope, was there a way of, of getting that idea across and, and did things change because of dissent? That's a that's a really good uh, question. So, you know, one of the things that kind of happens in the earlier medieval period is that you actually get away with a lot of dissent because, again, people aren't organized enough to stop you. You know, like if you are if you have a, some kind of differing ideas as a priest and you're kind of, I don't know, out in Northumbria or something like that, who's going to stop you? <laughs> you know? Like the Pope isn't going to have a real way of finding out uh, that that you are making up different things. And, you know, in the earlier medieval period, you do have all kinds of differing ideas about what religion is going to be. So, for example, um, Arianism, which later on becomes a heresy, is really common. And that's saying basically that there's like a ranking of uh, God. So you have God at the top, then Jesus, then the Holy Spirit, you know, one, two, three. Um, and then that eventually becomes heresy and you're supposed to think of, you know, the Trinity as all equally the same. But that's a really, really common way of thinking about things. And it takes hundreds of years to resolve that, absolutely hundreds of years. So they don't really have a way of cracking down on that. Um, it's not until you kind of get into the later Middle Ages, uh, so around about the high medieval period, that you start to see more cracking down on things like that. Um, now, having said that, it's a little bit easier for lords and kings to do it because they're looking over a, a smaller period. So, you know, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble if you've got um, – if you were kind of uh, saying bad things about the king, you can find yourself in trouble really quickly about that, especially if you are rich and the king knows who you are. Um, if you were some peasant, they probably don't care. Uh, but it, it, it all kind of means that people are sort of along on these different echelons, right? So if you're a noble, it's more likely that you're going to draw attention. Um, and that's who we end up hearing a lot more about. But, you know, fundamentally, peasants can really get away with rather a lot because nobody cares uh, what they're doing and is, they're not really paying attention to them. So um, you do see uh, various heresies, um, various uh, political ideas kind of come and go. Um, and uh, actually, you know, that's why peasants actually rebel rather a lot. They're, they're always quite, quite interested in <laughs> overthrowing their landlord. Uh, but they, they get repressed pretty badly uh, because, you know, obviously the lords have different ideas on that matter. But, yeah, so you do see a, a fair diversity of opinion. And that kind of homogenizes down. And actually, it's uh, the early modern period. So around about, you know, the Renaissance, uh, when, when you start getting Protestants and things like that, um, you start to see a lot more cracking down and a lot more centralized authority. Um, and that's when things kind of become a lot more homogenous. Of course, there was the famous Peasants' Revolt in, uh, mm. in England uh, later on, in the 1300s, mm -hmm. I think. Um, mm. You've written about the role of women in the Middle Ages. How prominent yeah. were they? Did they just stay at home and have children and look after the home? What was the role of the woman in the Middle Ages in Western Europe? Yeah, so it's interesting because the number one thing that women probably did was be mums in the Middle Ages, absolutely. Um, and that's something that's going on. But 
they never stay at home <laughs> the way that we think about it. And that would actually be really crazy uh, for middle ages people. They, they would think, well, what do you mean by that? Um, so women are working throughout the entire medieval period in basically all of the jobs that men do. You know, whether we, we know that there are women blacksmiths, there's, you know, women who are working in most of the guild industries. Um, they, there are queens who are doing really high level, uh, you know, kind of um, scholastic work work or uh, political things that move back and forth. Um, so there's never just, it's never just kind of staying at home, right? So even if we look at peasant women, again, you know, there's all the work to do on the farm. And sure, they're at home, but everyone's at home when when they're a peasant, right? And they do all exactly the same things that men do. And we, we see this um, in art tropes and stuff. You'll see, you know, them doing pictures of what people do, for example, in, in March. And it'll say, oh, well, this is when you sow grain. And you'll see the men and women alongside each other, you know, doing all exactly the same jobs. Um, and then when you get to the occupations in cities, so uh, people who are members of guilds, people who are doing like the high paying work, it's always kind of understood that you're going to have a wife who is in that job alongside you. So women, a lot of the time, are the bookkeepers for businesses in particular. Uh, they're the ones who are kind of keeping an eye on finances. And we've got lots of records of this, you know, women kind of uh, writing to the, the king asking for tax breaks or uh, loaning money to various individuals, things like this. And they'll be in involved in the trades as well. They get involved with the crafts. Um, even for things like, you know, uh, the army, you don't really see a whole lot of women show up in military positions, but the wives of soldiers travel alongside soldiers. So when people go on campaign, um, they have what we call camp followers. So uh, your wife comes along and she's the one cooking you dinner every night and washing your clothes. And it, it's a really different way of looking at the army. Um, and of course, you know, the women we we know most about in the medieval period are, of course, uh, ladies and queens, you know, and you see all kinds of uh, really involved women, um, you know, for example, the woman I'm named after, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who uh, actually does lead, you know, armies during the Second Crusade. You know, she is out there leading the the um, Aquitanian division who's like going to war. So we see women at every kind of level of society who are out there in the world doing all kinds of di different things. And it's actually not until after the Enlightenment that we start to see women kind of retreat from the workforce. And interestingly, even then, it's really only middle class women who do. You know, working class women are at all the time, you know, here in uh, England, you know, in Manchester working in mills, you know, they're working in domestic service and houses as maids and they're cooking and they're cleaning and looking after people's kids. Um, and then wealthy women are very involved in charities or diplomatic work still or, you know, they're writing and they're doing philosophy. It's the middle class women who would have been involved in things like, you know, keeping shops or, you know, the various trades. They're the ones who become domestic and retreat from life. Um, but that's only for about 100 years. And I Actually, the, the number one period of time when there are more women who are just uh, housewives, I say just, that's a very hard job. I don't know, <laughs> absolutely not saying that that isn't a, a difficult job, but um, it's actually the Edwardian period is when there are the most stay-at-home moms um, at any other time. In the Middle Ages, that would never be something that happened and people just wouldn't expect it. What about life expectancy at this time? Sometimes you read that life expectancy was about 30. Is that right? Oh, see, that's a really funny kind of trick because the way that we work that out is that's the average age, right? So you actually hear it's usually like, oh, the average age of uh, right. of death in the Middle Ages is 35. But there's a trick to this, right? Yeah, because I'm sure there's a lot of children that die very young. <laughs> exactly. So um, we and, and it's it's really sad. It's about half of all babies who are born die before the age of two. Um, and that, which is really awful. And that, that ends up being true right up until the 19th century when we invent vaccines. Um, you have really high infant mortality and that's just the case. So that this kind of shows you, you know, what I'm getting at here. So, you know, if half of all people die before the age of one, then if you do your averages, that's how you work out 35. Because if you make it past that, people live into their 70s all the time. Um, for women, there's another uh, little problem along those lines, which is childbirth. A lot of women do die in childbirth, um, which is, again, something that we only really tackled in the 20th century. You know, we've only got good at that recently. So if you make it past, uh, you know, childbirth, if you're a woman or out of childhood, uh, just for everyone in general, you can live a pretty long life. You know, we've got examples of people who sometimes live into their 90s, and that's wow. nowhere near seen as outrageous, you know? Yeah. One of the other things I once read about the Dark Ages is that it was called the Dark Ages, or one of the reasons, 
was because it was very dark. It was a dark time. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, one of the things that we, we've got to keep in mind is that, you know, um, you've got to light everything, you know, with, with, with candles. You know, it is, it is one of these things where um, you would not believe how important candles are in the Middle Ages. It's, it's so funny. You know, a big thing that the church is constantly asking for uh, donations of is candles. Like, please send us candles. We need candles. <laughs> you know, so, um, and if you're, uh, you know, not particularly wealthy, that's one of the first things to go. So, yeah, people do a lot of the time work a lot more based on what the hours of the day are, you know, trying to be outside in the light and making use of that. And then when you're in the home, there's sort of like, well, sure, you could sit by the fireplace and things like that. But, you know, it's, it is actually because of the way, you know, electricity has totally changed our lives uh, for the better. Um, you know, there are all these things we completely take for granted, like the idea that you could be hanging out reading a book at 10 at night, that would be crazy to them, yeah. you know, <laughs> because you don't want to, you don't want to put your, your precious and expensive book next to a fire, you know? And you don't want to waste that candle either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, um, Was wants to know, uh, where, where does the Ottoman period fall into this time span? Now, the Ottoman Empire, I think, didn't really end until uh, the end of World War One. So when did the yeah. Ottoman, end, uh, Ottoman uh, Empire begin and was it at any time during this period? Yeah, so the Ottoman um, Empire, it's the dynasty is founded in 1299. So it's kind of the late medieval period is when they they finally get uh, some power going, and they they stay, they've got a pretty good innings, you know, like they, they, it's about yeah. 600 years there. That's not bad at all. But it's later medieval, um, so you see them come up and really kind of take over a lot of what was kind of like the former Byzantine Empire. They kind of like just knock that on the head, and and it's theirs now. So they're controlling from. Uh, you know, Egypt up into what is now Turkey uh, really effectively. And then, you know, over into the Balkans, places like that. But they don't come along until the uh, later medieval period. Um, but they really smash it. A really good, a really longevity on that empire, it has to be said. Why did the Dark Ages end? Mm, yeah, so great question. <laughs> did they end? <laughs> question mark. Um, yes, I think we're in a new the, Dark Ages now. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I say that part of it is um, – you know, uh, increased stability, increased uh, population. Um, and also, you know, it kind of has to do also with people being more interested in keeping stuff, you know, like, so if we go to the idea of the Dark Ages being, you know, ab about texts and things, um, people suddenly get more interested in keeping older texts, uh, whereas they're like, oh, I don't care what anyone in, you know, 657 was doing, um, throw that out. But they do really care what someone is doing in kind of like 899, you know, they, oh, they think that's interesting. So we know more about that. But um, a lot of it has to do with um, increased trade routes. Uh, so you have a lot more trade suddenly start to happen around the shop. Um, you do also have um, more kind of political stability generally. You know, by the time you get the, the Vikings to settle down and stop attacking everyone um, and, and become Christian, you get a little bit more uh, stability, a little less kind of like ongoing smash and grab warfare. Um, so it, it's a number of factors. But, uh, you know, you would say I think that some of them are actually just farming based. Um, you know, we get way better at farming. You get, in addition to the heavy plow, you also get the three-field system, which allows higher crop yields. And then that means that you can really keep a, uh, a population ticking along and you have more and more people. And basically, the more people you have, the more people can be doing things other than farming. And that's what kind of allows us to get, you know, books and manuscripts and start universities and make art. You know, you have to have that surplus food in order to keep people going. So actually, a lot of it comes down to farming. Uh, which I know sounds boring, but it's actually cool, I promise. <laughs> I'm sure it is. And that's what ended the Dark Ages and uh, probably what we have to, um, where we end our conversation this morning. What would you like to ask somebody uh, if you met someone from the Dark Ages? What do you want to know that we don't know, do you think? You know what I would really like to ask the kind of the average person in, is I want to know what uh, exactly what you were asking. Like, well, what do they really think about the guys who are in charge? I'd like to be able to get um, an average peasant's opinion about, you know, the church, their king, their local lord, and how they really think about the world. Because, you know, it's peasants that we never get to hear from because uh, they don't get to write things down and nobody nobody keeps their stories. So I'd just like to hear what the average guy on the street is thinking. One of these days we might find out. Um, thank you so much, Eleanor. And uh, your new book is out pretty soon, The Once and Future Sex, Going Medieval on Women's Roles in Society. 
Um, and that, uh, I, I mean, if what you've been saying this morning, which is so fascinating, I'm sure the book will be fascinating as well. Eleanor Yanaga, medieval historian, author, broadcaster. Your Twitter is going medieval. People can read that as well. And thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Eleanor Yanaga, our special guest this morning. And that was another podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Thanks for listening.